Good morning and welcome to Lesson 7, Why Jesus Spoke in Parables, Part 3, Sermons from the Sea. The reason I picked that was that the whole chapter really takes place on the Sea of Galilee. It begins there with Jesus in the boat, teaching from the boat as a kind of a pulpit, and then it ends with the boat uh, in the midst of the storm, uh, nearly so it would seem, sinking uh, to the demise of the disciples. This is Father's Day, and I suppose you uh, might expect me to say something about that. I will. Happy Father's Day. Uh, But it's also another holiday. For uh, 25 years or so, I served on the board of Black Evangelistic Enterprise that was later called uh, Urban Evangelical Mission. And I remember some of my brothers talking about Juneteenth. And I must confess, that just totally went over my head, and I really didn't register as to what that was. Today is Juneteenth. In, uh, it was uh, June 19th, uh, 1860, I'm sorry, June, yeah, June 19th, 1865, that a decree was delivered uh, in the state of Texas that really uh, changed the, the state of, of this nation in terms of slavery. You remember that Abraham Lincoln in January uh, the 1st of 1863 uh, came forth with the Emancipation Proclamation. But Texas then was a bit like Texas now when it comes to the federal government. And they, uh, they seemed to tell the federal government to take a hike. At least the reality was that very little changed with the Emancipation Declaration. Texas was far away. There was not much federal presence. It just didn't happen. Slavery went on. And then uh, in, uh, June, on June 18th, 1865, General Gordon Granger and Union troops landed in Galveston. And on the next day, that would be 146 years ago, I think, today, he uh, read the general order number three. And in that order was the proclamation that all slaves uh, were released from their slavery as of that date. Now, I don't think that you or I can fathom the immensity of that declaration. It just overwhelms me. Think about somebody who for generations has grown up in the system of slavery, and all of a sudden they are told they are free. As some stayed with their plantation owners, I, I, I assume that those were the ones who had uh, benevolent, kind uh, uh, masters, and there were many who left. Some left to be rejoined with family members that they'd been separated from. Others went north thinking that that was what free people might do. But it was a, it was a monumental time uh, in the state of Texas for not only slaves, but for their, their uh, masters. And for anybody that's thus affected, I say happy Juneteenth to you. But I also want to say that that whole event provides us with an analogy that may be helpful to understand where we are in the Gospel of Matthew and how things unfolded in terms of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
it seems to me that the appearance of John the Baptist followed by Jesus is a bit like the Emancipation Proclamation. It is a monumental declaration that Messiah is coming and that there is great change ahead. But the nature of that change is not really clear at that moment in time. And you can imagine then that as the crowds are drawn to John the Baptist, remember he does no miracles, the scripture says in the Gospel of John, he does no miracles, but many people come out to him to hear this message, as it were, of freedom. Uh, And by the way, the key word to that message was repent, or the longer form, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus follows John the Baptist, he comes with exactly the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So what is clear is that it is a declaration of the coming of freedom from the punishment for sin. And that repentance, as it were, is the necessary step that men must take. Jesus keeps the focus on sin and its slavery and deliverance for those who will repent uh, throughout the gospel up to this point in Mark. When you come to Mark chapter 1, verse 35 through 39, it follows the incident where Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law. And many of the crowds have come to the door, and Jesus has healed all manner of diseases. And remember the next morning, the disciples can't find Jesus. The crowds are gathering. It, It looks like they're really on a roll. And uh, the disciples say, hey, the crowds are back there waiting. And Jesus declares the priority of preaching over healing and miraculous ministry. And he says, I must go about preaching the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, it's still sin that's at the forefront of his message. He is one who has preached with great authority. And part of that authority is the authority over demons. But another aspect of that authority is his authority to to declare the forgiveness of sins. So the man who is lowered through the roof, the first words of Jesus to him are, your sins are forgiven. He has authority to forgive sins. Now, I think what's really interesting when you seek the background for the parables in Mark chapter 4 is to go back to Matthew chapter 12. I don't know why it's taken me so long to see this, but Matthew chapter 12 is not uh, as detailed in some ways as Mark is, but he is more detailed in setting the scene for what is going to take place in chapter 13 when Jesus begins to teach in parables. And you see a number of things taking place. You see, for example, uh, the the Lord Jesus, when he uh, delivers a man who is uh, demonized, the Pharisees say in verse 24, this man casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Same thing we read in the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus has some things to say about that. What is interesting to me is that when he responds, he goes beyond what Mark says and look at verse 33. Uh, We'll start at verse 32. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. He's doomed. Now, the next verse is not in Mark. 
but it's here. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. Isn't it interesting that he talks about fruit? We said last week, fruit is the expected goal of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. And, and apparently what he's saying here is there's an inconsistency. You claim to be a healthy tree, but you got rotten fruit. So, you know, look, either you're a bad tree with bad fruit or you're a good tree with good fruit, but get it together. You can't be a bad tree and good fruit. So make your fruit consistent with who you are. And then he speaks about the caution that they ought to take in terms of the words that they speak. And he says that every careless word that men speak, they will render account for in the day of judgment. That's pretty serious stuff. And it's not in this immediate setting in the Gospel of Mark. But here's the one I wanted to to, to, uh, focus on. In verses 38 and following, I've looked at that text a number of times, but not as preceding the teaching in parables, which we're going to see in chapter 13 of Matthew, chapter 4 of Mark. And that is, the scribes and the Pharisees say to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And remember, Jesus says the only sign you're going to see is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days, three nights, in the belly of the earth. Uh, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. So the resurrection is Jesus' final sign, as it were, for them. But look what it says now in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching uh, of Jonah And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what he's saying is, this generation has already heard the message that the king is coming, that repentance is necessary to be a part of his kingdom, and they have forsaken that part of the message. They are not interested in repentance. What they're interested in is miracles. Now, does that not help us when we come to Mark chapter 4 and we see this huge throng of people who have gathered there by the Sea of Galilee? The reality is they are looking for the miracle man. They are not looking for the Messiah who is going to proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sins through the repentance of men and the work of Christ. So it's very interesting to me that that becomes the backdrop for what we see in Mark chapter 4. So when Jesus now speaks in parables, he speaks of differing responses, and that's based upon the condition of man's heart in this parable, the condition of the soil. And only one soil actually produces fruit. The others are fruitless. And he goes on then to say that the reason he is speaking in parables, according to Isaiah chapter 6, is so that men will not understand, will not repent, and will not be saved. He is using parables to conceal the truth. Now, that's where we find ourselves as we come to uh, picking up on this story in verse 21. Uh, and we're talking of, oh, I should, I wanted to say one more thing. I got it, my notes, let me go ahead and do it. Notice, the central issues that are going to emerge with respect to Jesus and the crowds. I think this is really important 
to, to bear in mind. At this stage in Mark chapter 4, the critical issues are still not really on the table. Now, the opposition is there, remember? Jesus uh, uh, claims the ability, the power, the authority to forgive sins. Jesus doesn't keep the traditions of Judaism, such as fasting. And Jesus is not strictly observing their Sabbath rules about uh, working as the disciples were, were plucking some grain and eating it on the way. So there's this really serious set of things going on. But there's still the big standoff that is yet to come. With this crowd, one of those critical issues is the sacrificial death of Christ. If they're looking for Jesus, the miracle man, the one who will cast off Rome and set up this worldly kingdom with all of its affluence and they'll give us this bread forevermore, John 6, then the real issue is the sacrificial death of Jesus. And remember, that is the issue in John chapter 6 that causes the crowds to part. They do not want that message. No message about death and partaking of the death of our Lord Jesus by faith. The other is their admission to being slaves. What's interesting is when you look at, at Juneteenth, it was obvious that there was slavery. Nobody denied that reality. When you come to John chapter 8, remember he says, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And their answer is, we've never been slaves to anybody. <laughs> That's kind of funny. I bet they looked around to see if a Roman soldier was watching when they said it. They were slaves. But they were slaves to sin even more than they were slaves to Rome. So the critical issue for them is to acknowledge their slavery to sin. If they will not do that, then there is no need for a Christ and a sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And I don't know whether this is right or not, but in my mind, I all of a sudden began to think about the religious leaders as the slave owners. You ever think about that? They despised the masses. Remember John 7? Nicodemus says, wait a minute, we haven't given Jesus due process. And they said, what are you, stupid like all the rest of these people? And in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, all the religious elite got together and they said, you know what's going on here? If we don't get control of this, we lose our position in power. They were really slave owners. They had the people enslaved to their system and their power. And that's why in John 7, people were even afraid to talk about Jesus and who he was for fear of the Jews, for fear of the religious leaders. There is all that element that is yet to come. But when we're in Mark chapter 4, it's before that. So my point in all of this is to say to you, the critical issues are yet to come. But even at this early stage, Jesus is beginning to veil his teaching because they know enough to know it is about sin and repentance and they have refused to do it. So Jesus teaches this parable and then he follows up with verses 21 and following. And that's where he's saying, yes, I am concealing the truth of the kingdom, but it's temporary, not permanent. So he says... A lamp is not brought to be put under a peck measure, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it should come to light. What's interesting is that expression 
has more application than just the mysteries of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. He says that in the context of judgment, in the sense that nothing that men do in secret is going to remain in secret. It's going to be shouted from the housetops. This last week, we saw an example of, of that which was done in secret, or a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden, here it is all over the news. That's nothing. That's nothing compared to the coming of our Lord Jesus when all sins will be exposed and revealed. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the gospel of the kingdom that he has given to his disciples. There is a time, he says, when what I have told you in secret is to be shouted from the rooftops. And we're going to see that, of course, in the the book of, of Acts. So, concealment is temporary, and it is based upon the fact that God reveals to men in response to how they respond to earlier revelation, what they have done with what they have heard. The disciples have chosen to follow Jesus. Trust me, they do not understand all of what that means, but they have cast their lot with him. The others do not want anything to do with sin and repentance, and so the concealing ministry of our Lord has always has already come to pass. Now let's look at verses 26 through 29. These, king, these, these parables further fill out what the kingdom of God is like. And again, understand, we have yet to come to the great confession. We have yet to come to Jesus saying, there is a cross ahead. That is not yet on the disciples' radar. If it was, they'd be resisting it. But that is yet to come. But he is talking about certain characteristics of the kingdom. And he does that by way of parables. So when you look at verses 26 through 29, you read, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the ground. And he goes to bed at night, gets up at the day. The seed sprouts and grows, how he himself does not know. The earth produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now what's interesting about this is it sets the parable of the soils in perspective. The parable of the soils focuses on the condition of the heart of those who hear, right? So whether or not the, 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 uh, the, the, the seed germinates, whether or not the seed survives, whether or not the seed produces, uh, that plant produces fruit, is determined by the condition of the soil, the condition of the heart. This one is saying the counterbalancing truth, and that is, it is not all dependent upon us. Got it? It is not dependent. You don't come away from the parable of the soil saying, man, I've got to work harder at this. I have got to do better. What it's saying is, the gospel is at work in ways that are beyond men. So here's the man sowing the seed. All of the seed is, 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 is the same. It's not different seed. has the same effect. No tares in this particular uh, parable. Uh, no, no withering just fruit bearing. But what happens is the farmer sows the seed and then he goes about his life. He goes to bed. He gets up. He goes about the routines. And and what it's saying is somehow independently of the farmer, here comes this crop. Just whoosh. 
you know, there it is. <laughs> Almost like um, Aaron said the golden calf came. I just threw it into the fire and whoosh, out comes this golden calf. Well, we won't buy Aaron's stuff, but we will. When we see this, we'll recognize that there is something that is beyond human understanding or knowledge that, that explains the growth of the gospel. Now, I really, I, I want to hammer on this if I can a little bit, because the growth of the gospel, the growth of the church is really a mystery. That's what it's saying. All of this passage in chapter 4 is about mysteries. And one of the mysteries is, how in the world does the church come out of this thing? I mean, look at the disciples. What a mess. Look at, look at the church in Corinth and, and, and elsewhere in the New Testament. You say, how in the world can this kingdom come forth from this unseemly, unlikely bunch? And what you have to say is, the explanation has got to be beyond men. And it's got to be found in God. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, remember Paul says there, because people have been sort of exalting one person above another, and he said, you know, one man plants, another waters, and another reaps. But it's God who gives the increase. God is the one who produces the growth. And what I think I would go even beyond that to say is, and we may not know how? Now, we're, we're a kind of people who like to figure things out. And so you go to your bookstore and you, you see, here's a church that started out with five people or 50 people and now they have 10,000 members. And the first thing that happens is somebody talks the guy who's there into writing a book. This is how we did it. And then everybody goes out and they try to imitate that so they can get the same results you know what? God is not going to be put into a box. And the reality is he may bring about growth in one place through one means, and he may bring about growth in another place through other means. One of our missionaries, who I won't name because this will be recorded, is being recorded. One of our missionaries was, was telling me about a field they've been working with for years and years without success. And, and now all of a sudden they're seeing phenomenal results and growth in the church in that particular area. And he said to me, you know, people are asking me to come speak about it. Of course, what they want to know is, how did you do it? And he said, I don't have the foggiest idea. That is what this is saying. God is at work, and he's often at work in ways we don't have a clue about. Now, we still need to go to bed at night, get up in the morning, and we need to sow the seed and do it. But when the results are there, we must be with Paul and say, we had this part to play. God gave the growth. God gave the growth. That's what it's about. So when you come from that parable of the soils, don't come away with some kind of guilt feeling that I haven't done enough, whatever. Yes, we are responsible for our attitude towards God and what and all of that but ultimately you know and I know God changes the heart God changes the heart that's what the new covenant's about God brings about growth and so what we're going to see is God's work not men's work so let's be careful God 
works in ways that bring glory to himself, not glory to men. Verses 30 through 32, the uh, parable of the mustard seed. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It is like the mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the ground, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. That's insignificant beginnings, is it not? And and as I think my way uh, through the, the scriptures, I think about Elijah. Elijah, who wanted to see revival come to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so, you know, he has this spectacular event up on Mount Carmel where he's he's, uh, mocking the the gods uh, and the prophets for their worship and so on. And then when he gets uh, down to uh, confront Jezebel, and she basically says, man, you're dead meat. Now he's afraid. He runs off, wants to turn in his badge and quit. And remember when God takes him up on the mountain and he has all these spectacular things happen, God did not speak through those. He spoke through the still, small voice. And I think what God is saying to Elijah is what he's saying to us. Great movements don't necessarily have spectacular beginnings. Great movements don't necessarily have spectacular beginnings. I mean, would you call the beginning spectacular in terms of what you see now remember there's great crowds at this point and the disciples may be getting kind of worked up about that but what jesus is saying is it's really insignificant in its beginning by appearance but the reality is something great is going to come from it think about ezra chapter 3 and haggai who picks up on that with the second temple remember Second temple, the foundations are laid and you have all the, some of these younger people and they're all worked up about it. And you have the old people who remember the glory of the former temple and they're crying and complaining, carrying on because it doesn't have the spectacularity. God says, don't despise the day of little things. It's what's going to come. It's the building itself. It's who's going to come to the temple in time that makes it great. Mark chapter 3, the description of the choice of the disciples and his appointment of these men as apostles. Not spectacular, successful, uh, front page of Time magazine people. Insignificant people are the beginnings of what is a great kingdom. Acts chapter 4. Here are the apostles standing before the Sanhedrin, Peter and John. And it says they took note of them, that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Isn't that great? Unlearned and ignorant. I call that a mighty small mustard seed in the minds of those men. But when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, especially verses 26 through 31, he says, God has chosen the weak things of this world and the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. Now, would you not agree with me that this is really encouraging stuff? That it doesn't have to be spectacular in its beginnings and it doesn't have to have phenomenally gifted, uh, prominent, you know, kind of razzle-dazzle people. God says, that's not the way I began it. 
And the reason is, back to 1 Corinthians 1, because God isn't here to glorify men and their methods, or should I say men or their methods. God is here to glorify himself. That's why he uses insignificant people and small beginnings, because he wants to demonstrate it is he who is at work. Verses 33 and 34, again, are telling us that God is teaching men as they are able to hear. And I think what you have to conclude at this moment in time is (laughs) everybody needs a hearing aid. They're really, really not that um, in tune with what's going on. Now, let's look at the stealing of the storm. I really agonized about this. I tried to figure out, do do I do the stealing of the storm uh, as the introduction to the, the, the deliverance of the demoniac uh, in chapter 5? Do I do this as a standalone, or do I do it as a part of chapter 4? You know, where does this thing stand? And, and I've, I've opted to, to deal with it in the context of the parables for a couple of reasons that I hope will become apparent. Notice that they are still on the sea. That is, that morning, Jesus came out of the house went down to the sea, used the boat as his uh, platform, and then when all of the day's activity was uh, completed, the evening arrives, and Jesus says to his disciples, cast out, let's go to the other side. Evening of the first of that particular day. Man, there's a lot of stuff happening in that day. Is there not? A lot of stuff happening in that day. So... uh, It says, and maybe I'm making too much of this, it says, they took him with them. Why do you suppose it says that? They took him with them. Okay, who owns the boat? My guess is, it could be Peter and Andrew, or probably James or John, right? James and John. But it's it's undoubtedly one of the, the fisherman disciples' boat. So who's driving? Who's driving? You know, I, I don't know about you. I love to drive. And, and it's really hard for me to get in that passenger seat. I just love to get behind that wheel. But there's something, you know, there's something, there's a difference. Maybe it's a male thing. There's a difference between who sits in the driver's seat and who sits in the passenger seat. I'm sorry. And there's even a difference between who sits in the front seat and the back. But that's another story. So here you have this whole driver thing. And it seems to me that when Jesus says, to the disciples, he's saying to whoever owns the boat, let's go, right? They drive the boat. Jesus is the passenger in this boat. Now, by the way, if that weren't the case, what in the world is he doing sleeping in the back? <laughs> right? Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. You can't drive a boat sleeping. They're driving the boat. My point is, it's the experts who are at the wheel. These guys not only own the boat, they make their life driving it. But these boys are going to be scared out of their wits in a minute. That tells you how bad it got to be. Here's another little detail that Mark tosses in that the other Gospels don't. There are the other boats who are accompanying him. Now, I'm reading between the lines, but here's the way I take it. It's, it's so typically human that I find it easy to understand. Here you have this, this scenario where Jesus has developed this, this pattern 
of going down to the Sea of Galilee, and then the crowds gather, and in order to give himself a little space, he gets in the boat, probably the same boat, gets in the boat with his disciples, and they go offshore a bit, and then he speaks to the crowds. But if you were like I am, and we're sort of a gate crasher at heart, what would you do to get closer to Jesus? In other words, where are the 50-yard line seats? Well, you could push and shove for the front row if you want on the waterfront. Or you could just go get your own boat and drop anchor next to his. Well, there's a flotilla. That's what it says. So when Jesus says to his disciples, okay, let's, let's take up anchor and let's go across the lake. Here's this other little flotilla of boats. I don't know how many, but obviously a, a batch of them. And they're going across with him. Boy, would I like to have seen what happened to those other boats. Wouldn't you? I mean, if the disciples with Jesus in the boat are, are literally coming unglued, what do you think those other boats are doing? Are they sinking? They're sure their eyes have to be popping out because they're looking at that Jesus boat and it doesn't look like it's doing too well either. So here they are in, in those other boats. And, and Luke's gospel tells us Jesus didn't fall asleep during the storm, folks. Let's get that one straight. He fell asleep in the gentle rocking. And, and uh, by the way, I'm not reading this one in. Luke chapter 8, verse 23. As they were sailing along. Isn't there a song about that? Old folks used to sing. We were sailing along. Well, that's what they were doing. And Jesus falls asleep. It's easy to fall asleep in a boat in a gentle rocking motion. So there he is at the back of the boat. All of a sudden, whoosh, comes this huge, terrifying wind, whips up the water, and seasoned professionals who have spent their life on that lake are scared out of their wits. i got to tell you, that's one heap big storm. Now, they're probably, if Jesus is at the back of the boat, they're closer to the front. And when you head into a storm, the waves are breaking over the bow. They're the guys that get in the water in the face. Jesus apparently isn't getting a lot of the action. He's still peacefully asleep back there. And in a way, that must have just just gnawed on the disciples. Remember Jonah being asleep in the, in the boat in the midst of the storm? Those guys didn't like it either. And so the disciples now wake Jesus. I don't see this as a gentle moment. <laughs> I see this, frankly, as a Peter kind of job. You know, womp, womp, gives Jesus a good push, you know, like, come on, wake up. Uh, here we are. And notice the assumptions, too. We're about to die, and you don't care. Isn't that what he says? What they said, I should say. By the way, Mark's gospel has the harshest response on the part of those in the boat. In the other words, it's like, Jesus, help! And then another one, it's like, save us, you know, we're dying. And this one, it's like, what in the world is wrong with you? We're dying and you're sleeping. Something wrong with this picture. So they're, they're rebuking the Lord. Then Jesus does his own rebuking. And I have to say, when he responds, he rebukes the wind and the waves. Now, there's a sense in which if I was the wind, I'd say, what did I do? <laughs> you know, wouldn't you? I mean, I, I can't, I can't identify this, I can't nail this down, but my sense is that this is, 
this may be satanically generated. In other words, Satan is about destroying our Lord Jesus. He's about interfering with his ministry. Everywhere Jesus has gone in the synagogues, who interrupts and creates dissension and, and, and whatever? The demons. It may well be that Satan is saying, here's my chance. I don't know. All I know is the wind and the waves get a, a word of rebuke <laughs> from the Lord Jesus. And by the way, they stop instantly. That's where I wish I'd have been in one of those other boats. Now, maybe I would have been actually swimming outside the boat with my life jacket on at that point. But don't you wonder what those guys in those other boats thought about this? Now, it's one thing for a storm to work up like that. It takes a long time for a storm like that to stop. So these guys had to be eye-popping curious. Oh, I'd love to hear the stories they told later. Anyway, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. Then he rebukes the disciples for their fear, for their lack of faith. That's the problem, he says, that they need to come and deal with. So where does that take us? Well, what's the connection between the story of the stilling of the storm and the telling of the parables? The telling of the parable says there are a lot of things that are not clear to the uh, disciples. Oh, by the way, i got to tell you, if you come away from this text thinking that the disciples really understood Jesus and the crowds didn't, I I'd try reading the New Testament again a couple of times. Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 51, he says to the disciples, "Have at the end of the parables, have you understood all these things? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Well, they said, yes, okay, sure we do. Remember the text that was read during the worship time in John chapter 16? Now you're speaking plainly. Oh, now we get it. And Jesus says, so do you believe? Really? They don't have a clue. Do they? Do they have a sense of where all this is going? No, because Jesus says to them, you won't understand any of this until after my spirit has come. He'll remind you of what I've said, and he'll tell you what it means. The reality is the disciples are pretty clueless folks at this stage of the game. So, you got a whole bunch of people who have been given a whole lot of truth, and the reality is they do not really know what it means. But what do they need to know? What do they need to know? In the parable of the soils, Jesus is saying, the basis for further revelation is how you have responded to what you know already. Here's what they should have known. Trust Jesus. Is that not right? Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus to forgive your sins. Trust Jesus to deal with Rome. Trust Jesus to handle all these other dilemmas to establish his kingdom. And when you're in a boat in the middle of a storm and Jesus is there, you're safe. Trust Jesus. That's the message that, that at, when all is said and done, and maybe that's why I think it comes at the end of this chapter, in all of the stuff that you don't understand, there is one thing you should, and that is Jesus is in charge, 
And you better put your trust in Him. If you're in the boat with Jesus, friend, you couldn't be safer. You couldn't be safer no matter what the outward dangers may be. No matter how bad the circumstances look. Trust Jesus. So the ultimate issue is faith. The ultimate issue is faith. Not working harder. Not all these other things, which we ought to do, we ought to persevere, and all those things, the issue is faith, trusting in Him, in spite of what the circumstances may be. Now, I want to just talk for a minute about mystery, and then I'll be done. This whole chapter is about mystery. When you stop and think about it, Christianity is really one huge mystery. One of my daughters called me and was telling me that her little boy, who's made a profession of faith, started asking questions. Questions like, uh, if God created the world, who created God? Well, that's kind of, a pretty, kind of a good question. And then he started asking questions about the Trinity. And if God is really three, then is Jesus three? Well, you know, and, and he's starting to work through this thing. By the way, that's a perfect time, fathers, to say, go ask your mother. I never did that. These are hard questions. My point is, the older you get in the faith, the questions don't get fewer. They get more numerous. There is a mystery about this. Here's the difference between the gospel as a mystery and mystery religions. Mystery religions are those which have this secret inner truth that the initiated somehow get and the outsiders don't. The reality is the mystery of the gospel. There are things none of us get. Oh, you can tell me you got revelation all figured out if you want. I don't believe you. Uh, I don't even believe what I've said about revelation sometimes. So, hey, there is a mystery about many things in Scripture. And I would say a couple of things about that. A, that's what heaven's all about, folks. When you think of the level of mystery that is there, one of the things that will take place in heaven is that those mysteries will all be explained. And it's going to take all eternity. So there must be a whole lot of mystery. And we'll get that explained. The other thing I'd say is, who would want to serve a God who wasn't mysterious? Who would want to serve a God who is so much like us that we really understood all about him? I did a series, you know, a number of years ago on the attributes of God, but I think I would add one attribute, the mysteriousness of God. God is unsearchable, unfathomable. His holiness means he is absolutely other. Now, isn't that kind of a God going to have many mysteries for people like us? As a matter of fact, when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it basically says spiritual things are a mystery across the board. The natural man does not grasp the things of the Spirit of God. Only the Spirit of God can make those things known to us. So we look to him. A couple of texts that you might keep in mind in the mystery element. One is Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. The second line says, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Now, I initially read that as being, it's God's glory to hide the truth. It's the king's job to figure it out. 
I don't think that's exactly what the text is saying. I think God's glory is displayed by those things of himself that we cannot fathom and search out. That's what makes him so much greater than we. But I think it's the king's job to find out hidden things. I'm not sure it's saying it's the king's job to figure out all the hidden things about God that we don't know. Now, having said that, you've got Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite texts. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. Get this, that we may observe all the words of this law. When I look at Mark chapter 4 and I see all the mysteries, one of the things that I see about myself and, uh, and other believers sometimes is this fetish to know and to understand everything. And sometimes it goes to the point of saying, I'm really not going to act on it until I've got all of it sorted out. I don't think that's biblical. I think what our Lord is saying is, act on what you know to be true. Act on what you know to be true, and God will reveal further truth to you. Not assimilate all this knowledge, and when you get it all figured out, then make this quantum leap of obedience. But act upon what you know to be true. There are certain things about God that are hidden purposely. And we could spend all of our energies trying to figure those out, and the reality is we won't know till heaven. What we do know is what God has said clearly. And it is that that we are to obey. And on the basis of that obedience, God opens up our eyes to see other things. Obey what we know to be true, acting in faith and looking to him. You may be here this morning not really having entered in yet to the mystery of godliness It is a mystery that God would send his son to take on our sin, to bear our punishment, so that we would be reconciled to him. But that is the gospel. That is the uniqueness of the gospel. That is crystal clear in the scriptures. And he is the only way of salvation. If you have not yet entrusted yourself and your eternal future to him, trust Jesus. He is God's means of giving us a way to heaven. And for those who have trusted him, do what you know to be true. Do what you know to be true. And leave the mysteries to God to reveal to you in his good time. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for seeing ourselves so much in the disciples the disciples who at some point seem to have it under control and then when they get out in the middle of the the sea of Galilee and the storm comes, all of a sudden they're just like us. Help us to trust in you in these days of political turmoil, economic turmoil, chaos of all kinds. Father, help us to see if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus, we're in his boat And we are eternally secure. In Jesus' name, amen.